Jingi walla blagami arako dogum. Jendamani nyali garamanyali nya. Nyali nya nyathan nyathan jen. Garamanyali tugun gunu. Wana jangma malagunu gala tugun. Nyali nya tugun gunu. Bogube blagame. Thank you, Delta K, a Rakul Bunjalung woman, for welcoming us to country. Delta is a long-term supporter of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to Conversations from Byron, a podcast series featuring writers from the 2020 festival lineup. In this session, Kath Keenan talks with Vivian Pham about her novel, The Coconut Children, which is available for purchase from the bookroom at byron.com. Hello and welcome to this Byron Bay Festival podcast. Uh, my name is Kath Keenan and I am really thrilled to be here today with Vivian Pham, the author of the amazing debut novel, The Coconut Children, which came out in March this year. Welcome, Vivian. Hello. Thank you for having me. Um, before we get started, I would like to acknowledge that Vivian and I are here today in Redfern, so we are on the Gadigal land, the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I would like to extend my respects to Elders past, present and future here on this, on this land and on any of the lands in which you are listening. Dave Eggers, the novelist Dave Eggers, said of Vivian's debut novel, The Coconut Children, he said, You'd have to go back to Carson McCullough's debut to find such an accomplished and original voice in a writer so young. He went on to say, She shows a new Australia here, tied to her place and time, but touching on universal themes of longing and the alternately profound and ludicrous angst of youth. Vivian Pham is one of the indispensable voices of her generation. (laughs) Vivian is looking embarrassed by that extremely lovely uh, quote from Dave. Um, It is very high praise indeed, especially for a debut novel. Um, It came out in March this year, just before the world went sideways, and it has been very well received by critics and by the public. It is, um, I know that people have been writing to Vivian about how much they love it. Um, The book is a romance. It is a romance between a young woman called Sunny and Vince. Uh, She is still at school and he has just returned from juvie, and it is set in Cabramatta in the 1990s. Cabramatta is a suburb in Sydney that is famous as the sort of the home of Vietnamese culture in Sydney. Um, And it is set there in the 1990s when it used to also be quite, there was a lot of drugs and violence there as well. Um, So that's the book we're here to talk about today. This, and I have to confess at the beginning that I am not an impartial reviewer of this book. Um, Vivian is my friend um, and we met because uh, four years ago when she was in year 11 at school she enrolled in a novella writing program at the Story Factory which is a not-for-profit creative writing centre for kids that I run and so during that year uh, she wrote the first draft of this book and that's when we got to know each other and I feel very glad that she is still my friend. (laughs) Um, so this is a book that I feel incredibly passionate about and very lucky to talk to Vivian about again and I'm delighted to be here today. So Viv, could you start by telling us where this book started for you? Mm, um, I guess this book started when, well, Vince is based on one of my relatives and someone I know and love that had, that grew up in the 90s and had been through juvie and he wasn't really, um, during my childhood, he wasn't always there. But when I was in year 10, he kind of like started reappearing in my life very vividly and he was, um, he was there. And I just, I just felt like, um, 
I really wanted to write about him because he was such an interesting character to me and I'd never met anyone like him before. So I started um, asking him questions gently at first and then it got into like intense interview territory um, where I would record uh, the things that we talked about and what Cabra and Western Sydney in general used to be like as a teenager in the 90s, as a Vietnamese teenager. So yeah, my book started with Vince. It started with, um, yeah, my image of, of Vince, and I just wanted to show what the world was like from his eyes. And then it kind of, but it kind of took off when I started considering Vince from a set of, from Sunny's pair of eyes and the way that she saw him. And yeah, that's how it all turned out to be a romance. But before that, I was going to do something very like, I, kn- I know it's been described, the Coconut Children has been described as gritty, but it was going to be like much more gritty. But then Sunny came along. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what at what point in that process did you think this is going to be a novel? Mm, at what point? I think I always wanted it to be a novel because I always had um, the sense that there were a lot of different stories that I wanted to tell through this one story, and I, I felt like I could only do that through a novel by like uh, piecing together all these different narratives that happened um, at different times in history from Sonny's father to Vince's father and his mom, like all these different characters with different backstories. I thought that that could only be achieved um, in a novel. Yeah. So I think I always I always wanted it to be a novel. And you also in the book, there are parts of it that draw on other experiences in your family, like particularly your father. And can you tell us about like, how you how you manage that process like it's a it's a responsibility writing about things that happen to people that you love and how did you how did you think about that and how did you approach it with your family members um so yeah a lot of quite a bit of the book um quite a bit of my motivation for writing it was because of the stories that my dad would tell me and my sister when we were growing up and I always felt like there was always a sense that uh, I felt scared that it would vanish if it wasn't in a written form. Like I felt like the words were so important to me, but they were never written down. So I wanted to be the one to to write his story down. And that's why I think in the first um, draft of The Coconut Children that I wrote at the Story Factory, um, I was, I think it was, it was almost word for word um, from recordings that of stories that my dad would tell me. Well, these stories he'd tell tell them time and time again, like um, quite often growing up. So that was just one of the forms, uh, one of the ways that he would tell the the one story. But as I was editing um, during the two years after that, and when I was working with um, Penguin, I felt more of a, a freedom to 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 explore the story from the perspective of the child of the person that had been through it and so I felt less of a responsibility to um, use all the right words and portray it the way that portray my dad's memory the way that he would have seen it and experienced it and I felt more yeah I felt a lot more freedom just knowing that it had already been published by the story factory and did it did it change the way you thought about those stories of your dad's Mm. Did it change? I kind of just uh, understood more. I think the impact. I always took for granted. I think the the those stories, and I always wanted to know more 
but I never really realized the impact that they had on me, like the stories that are that were told to me and the stories that I'll never get to hear because they just aren't remembered or they haven't been passed down. I kind of understood the, the, the way that it shaped my identity and the way that it shapes a lot of kids' identities, the stories that their parents told them. Which is sort of where the title of the book comes from, is that right? Yeah, I think so. Can you explain that? Yeah. Um, so the Coconut Children, I think, comes from a line in di- in the dialogue between Sunny and her dad where her dad is just – he has a lot of botanical knowledge and uh, one of the things he talks about is uh, he asks Sunny why she thinks coconut trees lean over uh, large bodies of water and he says it's because the the coconut children need to drop in order to get carried by the, the current to a new island. So in a sense, it could – I think it could be – um, seen as the children being, um, I guess, hmm, I guess it could be seen as children kind of being let go of or being allowed to explore their own identity. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, and for your dad, it was, your dad was sort of dropped and floated to another place sort of almost against his will, really, wasn't he? I mean, he was. Well, he, he chose to come to Australia, but it was a difficult decision and it was, it was, it was through need rather than a desire to do it. It's interesting because it was definitely through need and like the, the aftermath of, of, of war, but also he was so enthusiastic the way that he um, talks about it, it. It seems, yeah, the way that he talks about it, it just and that, that point in his life and those experiences, he holds them really, really dear. Because he was only 17, right, when he left Vietnam to come mm-hmm. here by himself or with his brother. Yeah, but he didn't, um, yeah, yeah, basically by himself. Um, but he kind of, he's always been a very independent person and, yeah, he, yeah, not that he, uh, yeah, he, he kind of, he found it as, an opportunity to go to another place and be away from everything he's known before, which even then, not even retrospectively, but even in the moment, he really um, enjoyed to the best that he could, I think. Yeah, and I know, I mean, I know in this book, Viv, when you were writing it, you were you were thinking a lot about race and culture and and the way that those the way that those things play out in Australia. And I know recently of the things that have happened over the last few months, you've been thinking about that again. Like, could you just tell us, sort of tell us a bit about how your thinking about those things has shifted over the period of writing this novel? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, over the, I think I've spent around three years with this novel now. And at the beginning, I was kind of very motivated by, um, by my relative, like I said, in the way that the way that other people saw him and in turn the way that he saw himself um, and his and his idea of his own future being really dependent on uh, the way people kind of try to put him into boxes. And I felt like um, Sonny and Vince, the way that they grew up, they never really had, they didn't really see any reflection of themselves uh, in their society. Like they had these incredible stories that they, that they grew up with that their parents told them and the incredible experiences that their parents went through to get to this country. But everything seems to overshadow them. Like the the society that they live in doesn't really recognize them. It doesn't reflect them in 
television shows or in books or in movies and stuff and the stories that their parents tell them of Vietnam they've never really been to Vietnam so there's kind of a disconnect on on both ends so but at the at the time I was reading a lot of um civil rights era literature particularly James Baldwin and I kind of just wanted to 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 have a story where where there was a male protagonist and I just wanted the reader to be sympathetic towards him and actually care about his prospects in life and yeah and the way that yeah the way that he lives I just wanted someone to care because I felt like no one did when my relative was actually growing up so how much is how much is that a, was that a motivation in writing a book like wanting to wanting to reflect back to yourself the Australia that you know and you grew up in I think it was I think it was a huge um it was a huge motivation for me like when when I was um when I was growing up uh in the 2000s Cabra had already Cabramatta had already been um kind of there was a lot of police and government intervention already and so there was a lot less uh, violence and stuff and 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 the prevalence of drugs it wasn't as like in your face as it was before in the 90s um at, at least that's what i've heard but when i was growing up i would just hear stories like my my mom would um would tell me not to use like i would be busting when we were grocery shopping to 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 go to the toilet and she would not let me because there are all the these memories of um addicts using the the uh toilets and it being filled with needles and even if it wasn't at that time she was kind of she was very concerned with the the history of it and yeah it just scarred her and my dad it was just scary to them and so I kind of grew up with a very different um picture of Cabramatta than the one that my parents had grown up with so even that disconnect kind of resembles the 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 connection between me in Vietnam and my parents my parents image of Vietnam to me so I guess in preserving that that image of Cabramatta that I didn't really know, that I never really knew. I was kind of trying to reach towards an image of Vietnam that was familiar to my parents. Um, yeah, and I always felt like that would vanish if I didn't write it. And I know that that's probably not true. There have been lots of documentaries like, um, I think like Once Upon a Time in Cabramatta and stuff like that, that has documented people's experiences growing up in that time. But yeah, I being able to fictionalize it and and to um experiment with it is what motivated me, I think. Did you feel a responsibility around that? You know, like I I think we've had conversations before, you know, about that it, it puts a a burden of presenting your culture that there's a different responsibility to that and then you know if you're writing about something else you're you're sort of freer imaginatively mm-hmm. as a writer. How did you feel about that? Mm-hmm. I felt like it was in, in in some ways, it was like a burden to try to remember things that you can't remember, like trying to fictionalize something that you can't remember so that you have some grasp of it. But in in but as as limiting as it felt, like it also was a huge motivator, and it was the whole reason I think that I even began writing is because I wanted to preserve some an image of something. Yeah, great. <laughs> I think um, I know from uh, talking to uh, Patrick Mangan at Penguin House, who did the, a lot of the editing on your book. Like one of the 
you were very young when you started this book. You were, was you 15 or 16? Um, 16. 16. Um, and like I have seen your writing, you were always a brilliant writer, but your writing kind of has really grown in all kinds of imaginative ways over that time, as you would expect in any writer, but I, particularly in a writer so young. And I remember Patrick saying that one of the things that was difficult about editing your book was that when you change something, you made it kind of so much better each time. Like you were growing so fast that every time you wrote something new, it was getting better, it was getting better, it was getting better. And so the book was almost trying to catch up with itself all the time. You know, like how did – were you conscious of that process? Were you conscious of your your writing changing as you were doing it or and how did you sort of manage that in your head? You must have been – I know you were reading things and you go like, oh, no, that's no good, you know, and <laughs> you have to do it again. Yeah, yeah the, the one story had changed forms I think so many times. And I think it kept changing because my influences kept changing. The things that I was reading, the things that I read kept changing. I would have, like any teenager, I had like lots and lots of phases of going through things. And like I had a James Baldwin phase. That's probably been my longest phase, my most consistent phase. But I had phases where I was um, trying to mimic a lot of different people. Like I was reading E.M. E. Forrester a lot. And when I was reading Morris by E.M. Forrester, I was trying to kind of condense my writing and have it still be romantic in a way, but but a little more sparing. And then when I would read, when I would watch and read poetry, um, spoken word poetry by Miles Hodges um, of the, the Strivers Row in Harlem, I would be much more I felt like I was much freer to be sentimental and freer to 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 pay homage to or homage, I don't know how to say it. <laughs> to, to to just like uh personify Cabramatta and make her a thing of grace and stuff. I felt like that was my intention and that's what I picked up from a lot of spoken word artists. And when I was listening to um I, when I had a phase when I was listening to a lot of Arctic Monkeys songs and reading Arctic Monkeys lyrics, I wanted something really dry and 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 ironic and passionless, but also really clever. So it, it just it's a lot to pack into one novel. <laughs> it's a lot. So and it, it just kept happening. There are so many different um, uh, songs and movies and books that I would consume and that would make me see my work differently. And I feel like that's why it's so disjointed in a lot of ways. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, yeah, I think that's really interesting. And one of the, you know, we've talked about this before as well, but you are um, obviously very young to write this book. And the people in the book are quite young. Like Sunny is still um, at high school and they're both 17, I think, aren't they, mm -hmm. through the book. And one of the things that I really like about it is that a lot of books can tend to talk down to young people or treat treat young people as sort of slightly different people to adults. But there is you, you take them absolutely seriously in this book, and they have all the the burdens and responsibilities of someone twice their age. They're looking after family members. They're you know sort of emotionally, financially, in all kinds of different ways. Um, was that a did that just come naturally to you or was that something you were doing on purpose? Like were you – I know you were keen to get the book published not as a YA book but as a as a general book. So could you tell us about that? Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that you said, um, yeah, me, me trying to take my young characters seriously because I think the way that I – the way that I try to do that is by uh, 
exploring the moments of their vulnerability, but also the the moments where they're so absurd and the things that they think about and the, the people that they want to be misaligned so drastically with the, the way that they act and the way that they behave and stuff. Um, and I also think it's because, but this is the main reason, and it's because I thought I, I took myself really seriously as a teenager. <laughs> and so it only made sense that I would take <laughs> all of my, my teenage characters, take themselves really seriously. So I think that's, yeah, I think that's a big part of adolescence and growing up is, is just, um, not being able to laugh at yourself a lot of the time. And it kind of fills you up with tears, like to the point of explosion where, and I still deal with that. Like there's all this, um, there are, it's funny to, to me to see, um, a lot of articles written about me, uh, as a young writer and stuff and someone that's accomplished something when they're young, but at home, I'm still like the baby and I cry really easily. And it's because I take myself so seriously. And I feel like the media is playing into that as well because they take me seriously. So it's just, yeah. So, yeah, so you're whole... never going to lighten up. You're just always going to take yourself seriously. <laughs> yeah. Um, what are you writing now? Um, at the moment, I'm trying to write, uh, a novel, that's very inspired by my reading of P.G. Woodhouse. So I want to write a really funny, uh, really funny novel where, you know, set in a world, our world, but in a version of our world where it seems like nothing can go wrong. Um, and the main character is a boy named Clancy Mulligan, and he's also around like 17. And he's the school captain of a school in a, uh, in a small country town. Um, but he kind of... And at the beginning of the book, he has, he's quite conservative politically and also personally, uh, in his personal beliefs and quite reactionary. But as he discovers, uh, a hidden aspect of his cultural heritage, he kind of is forced to change his worldview by changing the way that the world views him. Um, wow. And why PG Wordhouse? Like he's sort of not one of our, most widely read authors at the moment? I think um, I, so probably the only two writers I've ever been loyal to are P.G. Woodhouse and James Baldwin. That's an unusual <laughs> combination, I have to say. It was just really, it was just really funny to me that for most, for a lot of my, uh, for a lot of my growing up, I would read Baldwin and I uh, would really take seriously all these issues that Baldwin was exploring and kind of I really admired his characters and his his authorial voice like wanting justice from the world that he's living in but then Woodhouse was like a complete 180 because in Woodhouse's world like there's no politics at all and it seems that nothing nothing can go wrong in his world and it's just I think writers other writers have admired his his world and described it as like a place where man hasn't bitten the forbidden fruit and nothing's ever nothing wrong has ever happened so i thought that was really interesting yeah and i kind of i don't know why i'm really drawn to both writers it's very it's a long way from you know in, in the coconut children where you're you know you're writing about these family stories and you feel you know in some sense a burden of cultural responsibility mm. and now you're writing it sort of the other end of the spectrum about a boy and a sort of very different cultural tradition and things like that. Does that feel freeing or how does that feel? It feels very freeing. And I feel like, I mean, we've spoken about this before, but when I am 
uh, writing a specific character, I feel like a method actor in some ways. And the way that I, yeah, the way that I go about my, when I'm really into it and when I'm most, my most prolific, I'm, I'm, I feel like the character has a compartment in me. And when I go about my every day, I feel them and how they would react to certain things. Um, yeah. And it's very different. It's very free. There's no burden at all because, uh, as a character, Sonny and Vince, feel oppressed by these stories that have been told to them but they also feel like these if they don't hold on to these stories and if they don't keep this weight on them then it'll then the stories will just disappear and they'll have nothing to base their identity on whereas uh clancy as a white australian and as coming from a quite not exactly privileged but a comfortable background the world so clearly reflects um the legacy of his ancestors and he doesn't feel like he has the responsibility to remember anything because everything's already been remembered for him so i think it's very different and i think it's really interesting but i also don't want clancy to be just a caricature and something that you point to um i want i want readers to be equally sympathetic to him which i think will be even harder to do yeah interesting does sunny and Vince still have little compartments inside you no, they're out. They're, they're gone. <laughs> I don't think so. No, not at all. Maybe later they'll come back. But at the moment, they're just in the book and they're just there. Great. <laughs> well, I think that is all we have time for, Vivian. It's very nice to talk to you, as always. <laughs> <laughs> it was very nice talking to you too. And I encourage all of you who may be listening to um, – go to your nearest local bookstore and buy The Coconut Children. It's a really, it's a wonderful book to read and it is an important book, I think, as particularly in Australia at the moment and lots of the things that um, all of us are thinking about. So thank you very much, Vivian. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. This series has been generously supported by the Copyright Agency's Cultural Fund. For more conversations, please visit byronwritersfestival.com.